Good Bone Health makes active aging possible. Join us for inspiring conversations from diverse perspectives in osteoporosis, from patients, healthcare providers, caregivers, policymakers, researchers, advocates, and innovators. Protect your ability to live your best life. The information and opinions expressed in Bone Talk are not intended to replace the services of trained and qualified health professionals or to be a substitute for medical advice of physicians. You may review the National Osteoporosis Foundation's full medical disclaimer at nof.org. Hi everyone, I'm Barbara Hannah Grofferman. Welcome to Bone Talk. As a writer who focuses on healthy aging, a dedicated runner and a marathoner all since turning 50, and someone who is keenly aware of the importance of exercise and specifically strength training to keep bones strong for life. I was very intrigued by a book that came out recently that explores our often complicated relationship to moving our bodies through the lens of anthropology and evolutionary biology and asked a lot of questions that we all have, like, is sitting really the new smoking? Can you lose weight by walking? Should we really ramp up as we get older instead of slowing down? Does running ruin your knees? That's a big one for me since I'm a runner. And the really big question, why do we feel the need to do something we never evolved to do in the first place? And how do we get more people to do it? The book is Exercise, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. And the author, Dr. Daniel Lieberman, is my guest today. Dr. Lieberman, professor of human evolutionary biology at Harvard University and a pioneering researcher on the evolution of human physical activity tells the story of how humans never evolved to exercise, you know, to do voluntary physical activity just for the sake of better health. Using his vast research and numerous experiences from around the world, incredible journeys that I loved reading about, Dr. Lieberman tells us why humans evolved to walk, run, dig, and do all the other necessary physical activities, and even some enjoyable ones like dancing. While always trying to avoid needless exertion. This book is vast, goes deep, and will change the way you think about exercising, sitting, sleeping, playing, walking, running, dancing, and yes, even resting. Welcome to Bone Talk, Dr. Lieberman. Oh, well, thank you for inviting me. I'm pleased to be here. I absolutely love this book, Dr. Lieberman. I studied social anthropology in graduate school, so this appealed to me on many, many different levels. And you present the information in an engaging and very personal way, sharing stories about all of your journeys, studying hunters and gatherers, backed by your research and by science, which I think is the perfect combination, making the perfect book. Please tell us, why did you decide to write this particular book? Well, you know, there's never one reason you want to write a book, but you know, I've been studying the evolution of human physical activity for, for decades now. And over the years, as I've been working on running and walking and throwing and various other activities, I've become increasingly aware that the way in which we treat exercise in the modern world, which is basically by medicalizing it and, and, and commodifying it, uh, isn't really working. And it's a very strange kind of modern, uh, bizarre behavior. And, and kind of the the impetus for the book was was actually triggered when I was doing some research in, in Mexico and I was talking to some uh, Native American runners and, and there was this uh, kind of elderly guy who was like a famous runner and 
And I was asking about how he trained and he doesn't train and he couldn't even understand the concept of training. And he, and he asked me in kind of disbelief, well, why would, why would anybody run, run when they didn't have to? And, and it kind of hit me at that moment that exercise, the kind of things that I do, is a very strange, bizarre, modern behavior. And I wanted to write a, write a book exploring that to kind of help us you know, take a more compassionate view, but also kind of a different view towards how to help people understand exercise and how to understand how exercise is healthy, but also to make feel, people feel less bad about the fact that, that exercise is challenging and it's difficult. And, 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 and people who, who struggle to do it, there's nothing wrong with them. They're actually completely normal. And that was really the, the impetus for the book. It's good to know that the vast majority of us are really normal when we really like don't want to put those running shoes on in the morning and just hit the snooze button and continue to hit the snooze button. You know, I started running around age 50 and I had never run before because my, here's my motivation, because my youngest daughter pretty much dared me to run in the New York City Marathon and thus began my new love of running and specifically long distance running. And, you know, I'm quite passionate about it. And it's a very big part of my life. Um, in return, my daughter saw how much joy it brought me and really how good it was for me. And she too started running. So I like to say she motiv- motivated me. I motivated her. And now in her early 20s, she's even more serious and committed than I am. I love the story about how you started running because your mom started running. Can you just mm. tell us that story? Yeah, well, you know, I was a kid. You know, I don't really remember it too well, but my mother was a professor at the University of Connecticut. and They built this fancy schmancy new gym uh, with federal funds, and they wouldn't let women use it. And my mother was an early feminist. This is like the late 60s, and she was really pissed off by that. And she and a friend started running in order to liberate the gym. And, uh, you know, I was just, I was just a few years old. I was five years old at the time, I think. And I remember her starting running. She couldn't even run a quarter of a mile at the time. And I remember, you know, her and her friend coming home and being like talking about how <laughs> horrible it was. But, you know, they would go to the gym and get kicked out and go to the gym and get kicked out. And eventually they liberated the gym, but also she became a, a dedicated runner. And I just thought it was normal for, you know, she got my parent, my father running and I just thought it was normal for your parents to run. And so when I was in I started growing up. I started running a little bit myself because it helped me kind of deal with my kind of a hyperactive person. And, and I just thought it was normal. And I didn't realize my mother was a hero, of course, until later. But yeah, it was really my mother who inspired me to do this. Dr. Lieberman, didn't you know that all mothers are heroes? <laughs> it's, it's true. I know she's a hero really in this particular respect. I mean, look, 1969 was before the, before the running boom, right? You couldn't even I buy running know. shoes. So I loved she, there reading was, that story. Yeah, I loved reading yeah. that story. She was, she really, really is a hero and uh, was really quite the incredible woman. Yeah. And you continue to be a runner now, correct? I yeah, I'm just, I just signed up for my 11th in a row Boston Marathon, which would be my 25th marathon. Yeah. Oh, that's so wonderful. Yay. Bravo to you. Bravo to you. I know we've all been running uh, virtual marathons and the like, which I did uh, two this year, two virtuals. And yeah, so I'm looking forward to everything opening up again, as I'm sure you are too. too. And, And good luck. Yeah, good luck with that. Another thing I found very appealing too, with what you do personally, because I always love people's personal backstories is from what I picked up from your amazing book is that, you know, you really do the basics 
you do, um, you, you're not really a gym goer. You do the strength training, but you know, you do them at home. You, you do, you do the basics as I like the Jack LaLanne version as like, I like to call it, <laughs> which is what I do as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, I try you know? to, I have to tell like, a, I'm a typical runner. I really like running and I have to say, I don't really like strength training, but I also mm-hmm. know how important it is. So I try to force myself to do it. And I think that's, you know, something we need to understand, which is that all of us have, you know, basic, deep, and fundamental instincts to avoid unnecessary exertion, right? That's just normal. And and we live in this very strange world where now we have to choose to do it because until recently, everybody had to be physically active. You had to carry stuff. You know, there were no strollers. There were no shopping carts. There were no, there were no supermarkets. There were no stores. There were, you know, people had to do physical activity to do everything in life. And it's only in the last you know, very, you know, blink of an eye from an evolutionary perspective that we've created all these labor-saving devices, cars and shopping carts and suitcases on wheels. And, you know, the list goes on, right? Even even electric toothbrushes and electric can openers. I mean, you name it. And so now we have to do something really, really weird, which is we have to choose to do physical activity for no reason at all, right? And uh, except for, for our health and, and you know, mental and physical. And, and that's a very difficult thing to do. And and so I'm no, I'm no exception. And I also like to, when I like to run, you know, I never enjoyed the beginning of a run ever. I mean, I, it's, it's always a struggle. To yes, I agree with that. Yep. I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, it gets so better nothing, as you get going. I, exactly. And, and, you know, because of that, it's hard. And yet we're, we're kind of, you know, we label people as who have struggled to do it. We get, we, 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 you know, we're uncompassionate towards them. We label them as lazy. And I think that's, that's wrong. It's like, it's like blaming people who have struggled dieting. Mm-hmm. They're, they're fighting millions of years of, of, of adaptations to prevent us from losing weight. I mean, we need to yes. be compassionate towards each other and we need to find new ways because, you know, just telling people to exercise doesn't work. You know, it, it works for a very small number of people and, you know, prescribing it or commodifying it, selling it, it doesn't work for most people. 80% of Americans don't get the minimal 150 minutes a week of physical activity. And believe me, Nike and, and the CDC and various other kinds of organizations would love to get more people doing it. And I think that the approach that we're taking, the, the proof is, is in front of our eyes. It's not working. And so we need to try, we need to add to the approaches that we're taking. And, I, and so the reason for this book is to, is to add an evolutionary and anthropological perspective, because I think, I think we, can, we can do much better. Now, one thing I do like to tell people is that if they did start running, maybe they want to run enough that they can enter some races, you know, whatever your pace is. We're not saying you have to win the race, but hey, you get a medal at the end. That's nice motivation. <laughs> I always like to post things like photos of me in a, in a race and with the hashtag, I run for medals. Whatever it takes, Dr. Lieberman, whatever it takes, right? <laughs> Absolutely, but, okay. yeah. Absolutely. I mean, whatever, really, whatever your motivation is, but, and we're all so different and everybody has a different motivation. But and can I, I do, can add something? Yeah, can I add something? Yes, please do. Please do. I mean, I think that the other thing that is really important, especially for your audience, is that, you know, we have this very strange concept in the West of retirement. This mm-hmm. idea that as we get older, we've earned the right to kind of take it easy and, and, you know, rest on our laurels and, you know, go to, you know, go hang out on the beach or whatever. But the, you know, the evolutionary perspective and the anthropological perspective on physical activity teaches us that we actually pay a big price for that, that we evolved uh, as a species to live to be grandparents in order to be physically active. And that physical activity that we do as we get older 
isn't less important for health. It actually is more important for health. So as we get older, these issues become more and more important. And that's not a a message that is is common. And it's and it doesn't make any sense except, you know, from an evolutionary and anthropological perspective. And you're right. The message for decades and decades has been, you, you know, retire and move to Florida, play a little golf, you know, take it easy, relax, because you've worked so hard your whole life. I mean, I get that whole concept. But in fact, that is working against us, for sure. And I love the way you, you know, you talk about that in your book and through that lens of anthropology and the research that you've done and our evolution. I mean, it's all quite clear especially when you lay it out so clearly for us. One thing, though, I, I have to say, I am a bit of a nag. I am guilty. I am guilty. I will say it up front. I'm guilty of trying to, I don't want to say shame people, motivate people, inspire people, especially people in their 50s and 60s and beyond to move their bodies more, whatever it takes. I happen to love running. And like you, I also do strength training because it's important to do that, especially for bone health. And, you know, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. But one thing I know I have said and have written, which you really don't like, (laughs) is sitting is the new smoking. It's a term a lot of us have been using to get people to move more and sit less, take it more seriously. But this is one of the many myths that you debunk in your book. Tell us why. Yeah, well, I mean, the reason I couldn't title the book Exercise is that to be exercised is to be anxious and nervous and harassed, right? And I think we make people exercised about exercise. And, you know, it's, we, we don't tell them the truth. And we exaggerate and we, we don't trust people sometimes. And I think we haven't trusted people with basic, solid information about, about not just physical activity, but also inactivity. And one of them is that sitting is the new smoking. And, you know, the idea, and I think that turns people off. I mean, I'm looking at my chair right now, and my chair is not a toxin like a cigarette that fills my body with toxins, right? And, and you go to parts of the world where I work, right? And you see people sitting all the time. My dog spends most of her day sitting around the house. I mean, animals, <laughs> yeah, you talk about sit, that too. <laughs> sitting, sitting is, there's nothing abnormal or strange or about sitting. And we, we've, now, we've now kind of demonized it by claiming it's the new smoking. And it's just not true. The actual truth is that you know people who live in, in in parts of the world where there are no chairs and where there are no jobs and there are no cars and there are no you know shopping carts and and have people have to work really hard they sit just as much as we do. The difference is that when they're not sitting they're they're all, they're doing a certain amount of physical activity. They're not doing a, a an egregious amount. They're not they're only doing a few hours a day on physical activity, but it's important, right? And 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 it turns out that first of all. It's, it's leisure time sitting that's associated with negative health outcomes, not work time sitting. And secondly, it's really how you sit that matters more than how much you sit. The length of time you sit per bout. So if you get up every few 10 minutes or so and sit the same amount of time as somebody who gets up every hour or so, getting up regularly turns out to be much, much healthier. And we know why, and I explain that why that is in the book. But the other thing is that they're kind of more active versus less active kinds of sitting. So fidgeting or not sitting with a backrest or you know, squatting or sitting on the ground all uses a little bit of muscles. And that's just that little muscle activity. It's like turning on your car engine and has all kinds of beneficial effects. So, so look, let's not, look, it's true that Americans need to be more physically active, but let's not blame our chairs. Let's 
just tell them the truth, which is, you know, try to get a little bit more physical activity. But the saying that sitting isn't you smoking, it's obviously, you know, nonsense to most people. And, and it, I think it's off-putting. And I think we should, we, we should credit people as being smarter than they are and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and telling, them, telling them the complexities of the, of the problem. And I think that they'll trust us more. So I think it's one, one this, and a similar example is sleep, you know, telling people that they need eight hours of sleep is also just not true. If you don't get enough sleep, that's a problem, but you don't need eight hours of sleep. There's actually no evidence that people ever needed eight hours of sleep. And I think we need to be, again, more honest with people. Yeah, you're so right about that. I'm going to stop using um, this thing as the new smoking. I promise you, Dr. Lehman, I will never use it again because you, your points are so well taken. You're right. And it doesn't work anyway. So what's the point of shaming people if it's not even working, as you point out throughout your book? And you just mentioned sleep. So I would like to get to that because you cover so much in this amazing book. And you have a whole section devoted to sleep, a whole chapter devoted to sleep, because we do know it is important. We do know it is viewed as like another pillar of good health and well-being. And you're right. This, the whole eight hours of sleep, rather arbitrary, right? It seems that seven hours, as you point out, seems to be optimal. And we all saw the study that came out this week about people in their 50s and 60s who get too little sleep, meaning less than six hours are more likely to develop dementia when they hit their 70s. So this is really important. You know, sleep is critical. I know myself, I made sleep a priority when I started focusing on healthy aging back when I turned 50, I'm 64 now. I tried my best to get that deep sleep in when the toxins are being cleared out of the brain. You know, I study that a great deal. I wear my Apple Watch and I try to measure my sleep. And, you know, we can all get a little crazy with measuring our health and well-being, but I'm definitely guilty of that. The real question is, what would you like to share about your research on sleep and its importance? And also any tips, especially for those in midlife who, you know, really want to get that six to seven hours of sleep without, and I want to really underscore this, without prescription pills, which as you say in your book, are quite abused in this country. And in fact, you quote neuroscientist, psychiatrist Jerome Siegel as saying, and I quote, in 20 years, people will look back on the sleeping pill era as we now look back on the acceptance of cigarette smoking. Would you please share your thoughts on this, Dr. Lieberman? Well, as you say, there's a lot to talk about here. But the, the mm-hmm. first is let's lay let's lay the myth about eight hours. You know, it turns so people. It's been a common trope that since you know electricity and Thomas Edison and iPhones and TV and all those other you know newfangled inventions that you know we've been robbed of sleep and that that if we didn't have all that stuff we would naturally sleep at hours. Well, let's just let's just first demolish that argument. It's just not true. There are plenty of people on the planet today who still don't have electricity, et cetera, I spend time with them. And I can tell you they're, they don't sleep eight hours. <laughs> and careful studies that put monitors on that measure how much they sleep show that they sleep like about seven hours, six to seven hours on average. And, and they're fine. So the, there's actually no evidence whatsoever that people used to sleep eight hours. So let's, let's first of all, uh, you know, abandon that idea. Secondly, because when you look at that... People really do feel guilty if they're, if they're well, like they're doing that's something the terribly wrong. It's, it's well, terrible. That's the problem. When we make people yep. exercise about sleep, what you do, you make them feel stressed. And what does stress do? Mm-hmm. It stress elevates cortisol. And what does cortisol do? Cortisol arouses you and prevents you from sleeping. And so just making people feel bad about sleep is the best way you can possibly think of, or one of the best ways 
apart from banging pots and whatever, making you sleep on an airplane, you know, is, is about the best way you can get people to not to sleep. The reason people have trouble sleeping is generally because of psychosocial stress. And if you want to deal with the problem of sleep, instead of giving people pills, try not to make them stressed. And one of the ways not to make people stressed is not to make them feel like they have to get this like perfect sleep. Right? And, and so we, we have this kind of, you know, what I call the sleep industrial complex. You know, we have these special mattresses and curtains to block out any sunlight and, you know, no noise and all that kind of stuff. And yet, you know, that's not a normal environment to sleep. And you know, humans have been sleeping in much more complicated disturbing and, you know, you know bedlam-like environments for, for millions of years, right? My dog can sleep anywhere. You know, people can sleep on airplanes. Napoleon's, you know, soldiers can sleep on their horses. I mean, you know, it's just what you learn to do and what you feel comfortable. And so much of it, again, is about your, your mental attitude. So let's stop making people stressed about it and instead help people become less stressed about it, give them the information that they need, it's not too hard a, a skill to sleep, but we, we but we but we make people stressed about it, and there and therefore you know turn the dial up on terms of stress. And look, there are people who do have real sleep problems, and I do and I do not want to trivialize them. They are they're serious and they're real. But the vast majority of us simply aren't getting enough sleep because we're just stressed about it, and 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 that doesn't help anyone. And um, but it does make some it people help rich. Anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, all that, all yeah. those millions of dollars that we're spending on pills and all that kinds of other stuff don't, doesn't help anybody and just makes some people very, very wealthy. And it's, and it's time, to, time to try a new, new take on things. Mm-hmm. I personally found that once I started running, because I hadn't really been doing much of anything prior to that moment when I took up, <laughs> you know, what my daughter said, all right, run the New York State Marathon. And I found that as a result, and it continues all these years later, that I, my sleep is better when I've had more physical activity. But that's well, not to stress anybody, but for well, me, that's course, right. Well, of course, right. Well, of course, and you know, that, that study that was just reported in the New York Times, you know, which, which you know, a classic sort of study that, um, that looks at, you know, the relationship between, between sleep and, and, and whatever, they... they, um, they and they, dementia. They, Right. In dementia, they, they corrected for sociodemographic status, so whether you're wealthy or not. They corrected for cardiometabolic status and mental health. But guess what they didn't correct for? Exercise. What? And, you know, I mean, it's just, eh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that, that study that came out, it was alarmist, like, uh, like any, the, any of these studies that come out. And, and furthermore, I, I, I should I, also I mention... I couldn't help myself. I had to bring it up. <laughs> and I should also mention, what's the one... One variable we know that has by far the most effect on whether or not you're likely to have dementia in general or Alzheimer's in particular. So exercise. Exercise, exercise yeah, has, okay, okay. Exercise has, has nothing, nothing comes even remotely close to exercise in terms of its effect on people's likelihood of getting Alzheimer's and dementia. And we even know the, the mechanisms by it, right? We know that, it, mm-hmm. it, um, that exercise upregulates uh, something called BDNF, brain-derived neurotropin growth factor, which which is you know, sometimes called miracle growth for the brain, but it basically maintains brain health. It maintains uh, whatever exercise decreases inflammation, which is important for, for Alzheimer's and dementia. I mean, uh, there are studies, good studies, extremely careful studies, which show that people who are regularly physically active have something like 30 to 40%, in some cases larger in some studies, larger effects on decreasing the risk of, of Alzheimer's. Nothing, including sleep, comes even remotely close. So, mm-hmm. you know, you, you really mm-hmm. want to, if you're really worried about Alzheimer's and you're really worried about dementia, yes, go ahead. Try to get a bit more sleep if you're not getting enough sleep. 
But really, the, the, the key thing to focus on is, is, is exercise, which will also, by the way, help you sleep. Absolutely. But that's still not working. This is where it gets so complicated, is that even though so many people know this, that's still not enough to motivate them to get started or to continue or not stop. So this remains, uh, you know, something that is uh, an issue. Right. 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 And part yeah, of that is because people think they have to run marathons, right? They have to do extreme amounts. And, and, and yet mm-hmm. the data show that even just a small amount of exercise, if you're physically inactive and you just do, you know, an hour a week, right? Think about that. That's just like, you know, eight hours a day, basically eight minutes a day. Uh, even mm-hmm. that can have a, an enormous effect on your health and your mm-hmm. and your likelihood of dying and getting various diseases. So a, a little bit of exercise goes a long way. You don't need to run marathons. You don't need to do huge amounts of stuff. You can get an enormous benefit just from just doing a little bit. And you know, if you do a little bit, you might decide you might want to do a bit more, and you get yet more benefit. And right. And so and we, that, don't, that we don't. We don't. Exactly how it happened with me. Mm-hmm. Right. And we don't make that clear. We t- people think that they have to do. Ironman or marathons, swim English Channel, or I don't know what they need to people, you know, but, but you don't need to do that. Just moderate amounts of physical activity bring extraordinary uh, benefits, and we should celebrate that. Mm-hmm. And it really is such an easy thing to do, and free, for the most part, can be free or very, very low cost way to better you know it's free and just go for a walk and it doesn't charge nobody charges exactly. you to go for a walk anywhere on the planet mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. my knowledge yeah and, and at that moment i was just thinking about all the running shoes that i have in my closet but that's a whole nother story for another day <laughs> oh yes that's indeed <laughs> in, in your book you, you do focus also on obesity and heart disease and all the common diseases and illnesses that are connected to a lack of physical activity. And you wrote, I quote, among those fortunate enough to reach old age, it is not uncommon to be disabled by a tri- the trio, the trio of infirmities, muscle wasting, sarcopenia, bone loss, osteoporosis, and cartilage degeneration in joints, osteoarthritis, which I happen to have in one of my knees, not uncommon. It paints a rather dire picture, but then you give us a great deal of hope by writing Fortunately, an evolutionary anthropological perspective highlights how and why aging doesn't necessarily have to become disastrous for muscles, bones, and joints. So, you know, the National Osteoporosis Foundation works hard to encourage people to focus on bone health at every age as a way to avoid osteoporosis later in life, which is one of the most common and costly diseases that presents itself later in life, but actually starts much earlier. So, what can you share from your research to how we can protect our bones as we get older? Well, I mean, it's, a, it's really a lifelong issue. Um, I agree. I mean, osteoporosis is, 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 you know, we also call it the silent disease because you don't know what's happening until, until all of a sudden you get out of bed and crack. A bone, a bone breaks or a vertebra collapses. But, but, the, but the evidence is, is very clear, which is that, you know, there, there's a number of factors which affect bone health. But physical activity is, is one of the most important, if maybe not the most important. Our bones respond to loading. And, and there's really two, several effects. The first is that when we're young, we, we build up our bone mass. So when you're, in your, in your, when you're a kid and you're a teenager and you're 20s, you're still building up your skeleton. And that, that early life skeletal growth is really important because, because we all start losing bone as we get older. There's, there's, no, there's no way around it. We all do. 
So once you're starting, and your especially women, are, obviously, when well, it's right. estrogen later in life, that's, it's even more more severe. Mm-hmm. That, that's correct. So once you know, going through menopause accelerates that process because estrogen is bone protective. So if you're not doing hormone replacement therapy, you're more at risk. But the evidence is clear, which is that physical activity, especially activities that load the skeleton. So here's where strength training becomes important or impact kind of physical activities like running or jumping or dancing is great, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. All of those load the skeleton in a way that promotes uh, bone repair mechanisms. And so the evidence shows that as you, if you if you stay physically active, you, you you keep your bone healthy for longer, and you're much 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 less likely to fall below that threshold at which your bones aren't strong enough to withstand the loads that they bear, and then of course that leads to to some really dangerous circumstances. So staying active is a great way to keep your bones strong, um, and also and also keeping your muscles strong because your muscles will also interact with your bones. Obviously, mm-hmm. keeping your muscles strong is, is sort of equally important. So the two together are kind of a, you know, they're inseparable. Strong bones, strong muscles are the secret sauce for, for staying you know, fit and, and active and not getting frail as we get old. And, uh, and that involves not just aerobic activity, but also some, some degree of strength training. And this is why as we get older, strength training becomes increasingly important. Thank you for that. Um, Dr. Liebman, I really learned so much from your wonderfully rich and very detailed book. And I, I encourage everyone listening, pick up a copy of Exercise by Dr. Daniel Lieberman. And please tell us, Dr. Lieberman, what are the three most important things you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today? We talked about a lot of things, but what are your three top? Well, I mean, I think the three top things are, you don't, you know, just, a, just you don't need to do crazy amounts of physical activity, you know, exercise, just a little bit a little bit will go a long way. So if you're struggling to do it, uh, don't worry about it. Uh, you're not normal. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, and just a little bit will be enormously helpful. Secondly, uh, there's nothing wrong with you if you don't like to do it. And, and that the way, to, the way all of us evolved to be physically active was when it was neither necessary or rewarding. So the best thing to do is make it necessary and rewarding and make it fun. If you, you know, trudging on a treadmill is not your idea of a good, good time, don't trudge on a treadmill. I mean, there are plenty of other much more enjoyable ways to be physically active. Go for a walk with friends or go dancing or something. And then finally, if you're kind of worried about it and you, and you feel like there's not enough time in your day and you, or you feel like it's un, unrewarding and unpleasant, remember that, it's, that, this, that we live in a very strange modern world where we have to choose to do something right, that, we, that we never evolved to do. And the same is true of all kinds of other things we have to do, like reading, right? We never evolved to read. We never evolved to go to school. Um, yet we, we've learned and figured out in our culture and our society how to help people learn to read and how to go to school. And, and now, because we've made physical activity optional, we have to basically treat, I think, uh, exercise the way we treat education. And if you kind of keep those three ideas in mind, I think you can try a different approach uh, as opposed to waiting for a doctor to prescribe it, you know, treating it like cod liver oil or, or, you know, or, or, you know, paying a lot of money to do it. You know, there, there are other kind of more uh, sort of natural, normal sort of human ways to do it. And we all benefit from it. Thank you so much for those tips. Uh, and I agreed with all of them and especially your comment about the treadmill. I hate treadmills so very much. <laughs> my very down to my very core. 
<laughs> I never, ever step on a treadmill. Okay, Dr. Lehman, thank you so much for joining me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. It's my pleasure as well. Thank you. We will have links to NOF resources as well as how to learn more about Dr. Daniel Lieberman, his newest book, Exercise, and his very important work at bonetalk.org. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with our wonderful guests. For more information about how to keep your bones strong and healthy for life, please visit nof.org regularly for up-to-date information. We always hear amazing things from our guests, but we want to hear from you too. So visit bonetalk.org and go to share your story to tell us about your experiences. Finally, please do two things, simple, simple things. One, subscribe to Bone Talk so you never miss an episode. And two, please share with all your friends and family so they can benefit from this information. Thank you for joining us today. Until next time, remember this. We can't control getting older, but we can control how we do it. Bye for now. Thank you for joining Bone Talk, the National Osteoporosis Foundation's podcast that shares information, strategies, and inspiration about good bone health that makes active aging possible. To learn more about bone health, to become involved and or help fuel NOF's mission with financial support, visit nof.org.